Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. This is Kent Dobson. Special thanks to my son Jonas for the little Advent beat here. He cooked up. Very cool. And you are listening to the third in an Advent series, the third podcast in a short Advent series that I'm doing. I wanted to return to the scriptures, to the New Testament to the traditional Advent readings, just to hear them again, just to open my heart, my ears, my eyes, um, my brain to these ancient words. Sometimes I consider myself a bit of a defender of the ancient ways, the ancient scriptures, the ancient stories and symbols and metaphors and archetypes. Not that they need my defense. The Bible doesn't need my defense. The Bible stands on its own, although uh, we live in an age with tremendous mistrust toward the ancient, um, toward voices of wisdom, even to good old-fashioned words like tradition. We're very suspicious. It's like Bob Dylan saying, (laughs) what did he say? Uh, Don't listen to anyone over the age of 20 or 30, something ridiculous. Um, I don't listen to anyone over the age of 30, I think he said. I don't know, it was part of that 1960s um, idealism. I'm sure he changed his mind when he turned 30. I, oh, I meant 35, and then, and then, oh, I meant 40. So part of the great opportunity faced, um, or part of the great opportunity that we all face, every generation faces, is what do we listen to, what do we turn our attention to from the hard-earned wisdom of the past and the follies of the past, both? What do we turn our attention to in order to live forward in into the future, in order to imagine the future? That's part of what makes us human beings, homo imaginis, um, which is a, a line I stole from a friend of mine at Animus, Janine, a poet. She says it a little bit differently, but that's the idea. What makes us wildly unique as human beings is our capacity to imagine, both imagine uh, a more peaceful, beautiful, loving, good, generative, and whole world, and to imagine uh, our own destruction and demise. And I, the passages that I've been reading so far in the Advent season are apocalyptic in nature that's so interesting apocalypse means to reveal and so there was a there was a great wisdom in the ancient world and in the ancient christian calendar that once a year let's remind ourselves of the apocalypse and let me say it uh, more more symbolically once a year let's turn our attention to the imagination of the future to imagine if we continue on the path that we're on what kind of world will be born That's part of what apocalypse does. The other part that it does is reveal what's hidden. And that's what the word word means, which is what I've said before. Apocalypse is a great revealing. And we need a revealing. Like, my heart is hungry for some meaning here in the midst of pandemic and change and crises. And it's coming in the form of a question. What is being revealed? What is being revealed? And followed quickly on the heels of that, what is is passing away? 
What is passing through the refining fire? What is being burned off? What chaff is being burned off? That's a mix, mixing of metaphors. Um, what, what is the wind blowing away? What chaff is the wind blowing away? In other words, what's being revealed right now? What needs to go into the ground? What needs to remain the same? Um, and what do we need to imagine differently for a more generative world in the future? Those are the big questions, I think. And I, and, and I would say the noble questions, the questions that we're invited into. And something I've been thinking a bit about when it comes to kind of contemplating these texts, the apocalyptic text, in a minute I'll get to today's reading, is um, this has so struck me. I'm a big-time reader of history and of myth. And one of the things that's obvious to me is that the ancient imagination for the gods, from Zeus to Yahweh to uh, Dionysius to Diana to um, Hades, whatever, um, or Vishnu, just to expand the tradition, um, one of the things that's amazing about the ancient imagination is that that they put onto the gods um, or they put into the hands of gods these massive powers, powers of earthquake and famine and fire and volcano and flood and um, destruction and, and, in a sense, entire global or world destruction. That's, that's part of the Noah story where Yahweh says, enough is enough, the hearts of humanity have turned toward uh, malevolence and evil and wickedness and selfishness, and I want to recreate the world. So it's that um, impulse, what's it called in Judaism? Um, oh, what is it called? I'm trying to think of the word in Hebrew. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. Um, oh, well, actually, what I thought of was tikkun olam, which means to repair the world. Um, but that, that already tikkun olam to repair the world is, is in the ancient story of Noah, where there's a destruction and a renewal, a destruction and renewal. And that's that apocalyptic, um, genius. The funny thing about the end of the world is that it never ends. That's what all apocalyptic texts have in common. You think it's going to end, but it turns out to be a rebirth. You even have this in the book of Revelation where you think it's going to end, but it's simply the birth of a new era. It's simply the revealing of, of, of um, order, triumph, um, being triumphant over the chaos of the age in the end. That's that destruction and renewal pattern. So the world never ends. And the world is only flooded temporarily. Now, here's my point. What the ancient people put into the hands of gods, we can now do as human beings. And I'd like to say that as clearly as I can. As given the absolute wild imagination ancient people had for the gods, let's put into the hands of gods, not that they were doing this consciously, powers that we could never get near. That was that kind of like uh, transcendent element of, of the deities, powers we could never get near, powers that we simply have to bow down before and say, um, who am I but a man of unclean lips, to, to quote Isaiah, standing in, in the shadow of that kind of power. That's what human beings have now. 
we are now living into the gods and goddesses of antiquity when it comes to the power to both heal and destroy. The fact that there are more nuclear weapons on the planet than, than, well, what's a better way of saying it? The nuclear weapons on the planet in the hands of seven countries can destroy the world many, many times over. We are sitting on that kind of power. We can literally, I imagine, I guess, it's a little more complicated, we, but <laughs> we can literally push a button and something not even our ancestors could imagine or at the very best put in the hands of Yahweh or Zeus or whoever, that's what we have at our fingertips. Yeah, what a world. So, in terms of what's dying, what's being born, in terms of what do we need to listen to from the past in order to move forward into the future, we better take these things seriously because we can no longer say it's not our, it's not our fault if the world ends. <laughs> As if it's an ending. It's always the beginning of something else. But if human life and and maybe we could say planetary life, habitable, habitable planetary life. If we're going to imagine that future, we better take seriously our own powers. We better do some self-examination. We better do a searching moral, spiritual, ethical inventory as, as never before because the consequences are so high. And I only mentioned nuclear weapons. Let's mention a few more. Bioengineering, genetic manipulation and modification of food, um, you wait, it's coming. When parents, you'll think, ah, oh, this is not going to happen. When parents will be given choices about the genetic makeup of their own offspring. And what would we call that offspring? Would that be human or would that be something else? When we can go in and manipulate um, the very structure of the universe that is a single human being. Just wait, it's coming. And, and we ought to think seriously. That's part of what's being revealed in our age. Look at the power that we have. Think about the vaccine. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I don't really, I'm not a scientist, obviously, but the kind of vaccine they're making is unlike other vaccines. Other vaccines are rooted in, in um, and actually it was something that ancient Greeks came up, which is let's put a little bit of what's negative into someone and see what happens. Um, and let the body react. Well, that's the kind of um, uh, vaccine approach up to this point. But now they're doing something different where they're triggering the immune response without actually putting in, in this case, some, some part of the coronavirus. They're, they're playing with how the body instinctually responds. So I don't know how they're doing it because I've only heard just like some brief news stories. You check it out on your own. The kind of vaccine is now different. We've never seen it before. And it's, it's incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. But we're dealing with the power of the gods. That's my point. We're dealing with the power of the gods from, and let me add one more. The fact that we can have a global impact on the biosystems. I think this is a much better way of, of talking about, quote, climate change. Climate change is something I'm going to stop saying, even though I just said it, <laughs> because I think it's not helpful, actually. Um, what does that mean? 
change, climate change. It's just so generic and meaningless. But let's talk about bioregional collapse, all right? So we actually now know through our own powers that through poisons and, and manipulation of crops and soil depletion and water depletion and so forth and so on, we can impact an entire bioregion. And we've seen that. Just take the Dust Bowl, for example. Nobody you know, disagrees with, with the human influence on that particular time period. Well, that's just now true of every single bioregion on the planet. So what are we going to do with that kind of godlike power? Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see why it's so important to do a searching spiritual and moral inventory? And here's my question, which is going to lead me into the text. Do we want to imagine a world of increased healing and wholeness or a world of increased unraveling, um, depletion, uh, meaninglessness, destruction, and death. <laughs> what kind of world do we want to imagine? And I really do think um, that's part of the, the spiritual um, task of our age. So let me pause real quick and check on my new puppy, and then I'll read from today's text. Okay, all is well. When John, this is John the Baptist, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, the Anointed One, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. A prophet? Yes, I tell you. More than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That is the traditional reading, the calendar reading for this year at least, in the Christian calendar in the Advent season for Matthew chapter 11, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. She who has eyes to see, let her see, to uh, allude to Jesus here. So one of the most important questions we can ask when, when approaching ancient wisdom, ancient stories and scriptures is, what do I hear? What do I resonate with? What rings my bell? What disturbs me? 
what allures me, even what repulses me. What do I hear? What do I hear in here? And uh, how might it provoke something in me and something in the world? And what is it pointing to? And as I've been doing, I'll, I'll mention a little bit about the story here and the context and then turn my attention a little bit to the symbol. One of the things that is true about symbols in general is that they're bottomless. It's the finger pointing to the moon, but the moon can never be fully known, so to speak. And, um, and same with these little Advent teachings. I could do these texts every single year from now until the day I die and not scratch the surface. That's really how I feel about, um, about ancient wisdom and about the scriptures. In fact, a little advertisement, I'm working on another Bible project, um, which I will make available to all of you. For some reason, for some strange reason, I found my, find myself being pulled again back to these stories. I'm hearing them like I've never heard them before. And they're making my way into uh, the new book I'm working on. But um, So that's one thing. But secondly, I have, I have in mind a kind of like, I don't know if I want to call it a master class, um, but in the, in the tradition of... <laughs> as if that's much of a tradition, masterclasses that are offered online, I want to do something similar with the biblical text. And I'm just now sitting down and organizing it and figuring out the delivery systems for it and what might work best and and how to make it accessible and affordable for as many people as possible and that sort of thing. So give me a little bit of time, but expect to see something like that in the near future. Um, and since I'm on the theme of advertisement, I'm going to do what something I did uh, last year, which I called Lent Descent five or six weeks in Lent, uh, another Zoom class. So look for both of those things. They're coming. I'm about to, um, well, with the Lent class, I'm about to make that available on my website. So if that interests you, if you want to get together with a group of people online, I find it a really surprisingly rewarding context um, for doing, all things considered, for doing um, group work. So check it out. Anyway, I didn't mean to do, do an advertisement. My main point was um, I'm hearing these scripture passages again, and I'm feeling the tug and the pull and the call, and I'm wondering to what they are pointing. So just a little bit on the story here, the unfolding story as we have it in Matthew. So uh, Matthew, being Jewish, is very concerned about the relationship between the unfolding story of Jesus the word Messiah, which means anointed one, and what the prophets were anticipating. And please hear me say that there's no such thing as the prophets agreeing with one another about what the coming Messiah was supposed to do or be or who the Messiah was or anything like that. All we have is are a series of hints and guesses and clues and metaphors and symbols and pointers. That's how the prophets communicated, through image. So they're evocative and provocative, but they're not, it's not math. It's not this plus this equals Jesus of Nazareth. It's more like, um, it's, it's more like for those who have eyes to see, they can see the connections between the anticipated one that the prophets talked about in different ways and the birth, life, and death of Jesus. Um, I mean, for example, the Essenes, who are the ones that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, 
they they anticipated uh, a priestly Messiah. Now they had a kingly Messiah too. So they had two Messiahs. You say, well, how could they have two Messiahs? Were they reading the same scriptures that everybody else was reading? But it depends on how you approach them and interpret them and wonder about them and um, and dig into them and what kind of connections you might be able to find. So major group, one of four or five major groups in the time period of Jesus, the Essenes, they called themselves the Sons of Light. Um, They're very apocalyptic and mostly male or probably all male um, of priestly origin, at least initially, who were lived these kind of ascetic lives out in the desert, uh, most of them highly committed to study and writing and interpretation and living very simple lives. Um, anyway, one of the major groups had two messiahs in mind. So it, it tells you something about how nuanced the scriptures are. Well, Matthew is concerned about this. So in the unfolding story of Jesus, he's trying to make connections here. And it's important to make a connection between John the Baptist and Jesus because of a couple scripture passages, mainly in, um, let's see, I think it's, actually, I can't think of the text off the, off the top of my head. Um, let me just pause and find out. Okay, I found it. Um, it's Malachi. Malachi is a prophet, and he talked about the return of Elijah. And Elijah is one of these really um, prominent uh, prophets of the Hebrew Scriptures. And one of the things that's true of the story told of him is that he it doesn't appear that he dies. It says that he's taken up. There's like a whirlwind that happens, and, um, and then he just disappears. And his disciples kind of go around from mountain to mountain looking for him, and they can't find him. And they assume he's been just taken up to the heavenly realms. I would say heaven, but that's not exactly what they imagine. But let's just say taken up into the world of the divine. He doesn't experience an earthly death. So Malachi, along with uh, some rabbinic literature, which I won't get into, stuff that's not uh, in the Old Testament— there was this idea that Elijah, because he didn't die, will come back and alert everybody that the Messiah is coming. And so the question is, what's the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus? John the Baptist is clearly a prophet, and most people think he's a prophet, and they're coming down to him and being baptized by him, which I talked about last week. And and so the, the question would be, especially for those who are really committed to the Torah and have sort of high hopes for the Messiah, is is he Elijah? Because he sure sounds like it. He says, there's one who is coming whose sandals I'm not fit to untie. That sounds pretty, you know, messianic. And uh, sure enough, Matthew's trying to make these connections. So it's important. So the overall story, it's building. It's building toward the question of Jesus' own um, identity as the Messiah. And here, this passage is really trying to answer that question, that John is, in fact, Elijah. I'm going to say something ab- about that. Not, and he, please don't hear that in any kind of sort of, you know, physically literal sense. Not even Jesus reads it that way. You'll see that in a moment. But, um, but he's carrying on that kind of uh, archetypal role, you could say, as the announcer of the Messianic Age. 
And, and of course, the question be behind that is even, well, what is the Messianic age? And that's what I want to talk about today. That's what I'll do when I, when I talk about symbol. But just in terms of story, that's what's, what Matthew is up to. That's the story he's trying to tell. And interestingly enough, and there's good reason to trust this from a historical critical point of view, is that John the Baptist is unsure if Jesus is the Messiah. After all, they're related. If your cousin claimed to be the Messiah, you'd be like, yeah, sure. You know, everybody's got a got that cousin who struggles with inflation, thinking what, what he or she is up to is uh, really, really important, and maybe even, um, uh, you know, God's business. So he doubts it, and, and there's good reason for John to doubt this, and that's because he's in prison. And in terms of, of context, we could say the reason why John is in prison is pretty straightforward. He is a threat to the political, religious establishment. That's why he's in prison. He's a threat. And um, who is he threatening? He's threatening the Herods that are in charge here. So we're not talking about Herod the Great anymore. We're talking about Herod um, Antipas and Herod Philip. And John the Baptist has criticized, let's see, um, I think Antipas for marrying one of Herod Philip's former wives. It's been a while since I've thought about like the exact details, but it, it's something like that. And, um, and he's also preaching about the coming of a new kingdom and the coming of the Messiah. Now remember, hear the word Messiah in its most straightforward sense. There, the coming king is, is, a, is about to arrive and, and he has an ax in his hand. And he's about to cut the tree down. That's the metaphor he uses. So, of course, he's going to get himself into trouble, and he eventually does. He gets arrested for criticizing the establishment and for warning of an alternative kingdom, and he's in prison. So the fact that he's in prison and Jesus, if he really is so messianic, isn't doing anything about it is maybe reason enough to, to doubt, especially if we're to take John the Baptist in a kind of a straightforward way. Maybe John the Baptist was imagining a very concrete and literal um, destruction of the empire or the powers that be, and that the Messiah will come in on a white horse, so to speak, and clean house. Maybe that's how John was kind of understanding uh, the scripture passages. So he says, are you the one who is to come, which is an allusion to the book of Daniel and the book of Zechariah. So he's sort of like quoting scripture to make the, the necessary allusions clear enough. And Jesus says, well, okay, all right. You're asking if I'm going to come and, and be fulfill the, the messianic expectations. So maybe Jesus thinks something to himself like, well, well, how should I respond to this? Should I just tell John, yeah, I'm the Messiah. Should I say, no, I'm not the Messiah? Um, should I be evasive? Or should I answer the question without answering it by by describing what is happening on the ground. Which I think I'm already seeing as a, as a kind of um, spiritual invitation. It's not enough to say you believe something. I mean, what does that even look like? Or to claim out loud that you are something. I mean, think about it. Say, well, I'm a believing Christian. What's that? What does that look like? 
I mean, are we supposed to go into your head and and is there is there some sort of mechanism in the brain that can convince any of us that you're believing or not believing? Or if you claim, I don't believe in this, or I do believe in that, or, um, or just saying out loud uh, and, and announcing what you identify as or what role you play in society um, or how you'd like to be addressed. What, is that, what does that look like? Or I should say, uh, what does that look like on the ground? Like, if Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, the question would be, so what? So what if you make that claim? There were others who made such claims. And that's not really what's important. What's important is, if you're the Messiah, what is actually happening? And maybe that's a much better question for your own beliefs and values, or for my own beliefs and values, Enough of just saying words, and especially in the age of social media, where we are allowed free reign to say whatever the hell we want. What does it look like on the ground? I'll criticize myself for a moment. I have essentially voted for the Green Party um, since I could first vote. Why? I'll tell you, embarrassingly simple. I like being outside, so therefore I must like the Green Party. Not even really knowing anything about what they actually stood for or if they were really that green or if I agreed with their solutions around, around uh, protecting the environment. Some, now that I know a little bit more, I agree with some of them and I disagree with actually many of them. So, um, But before I did any internal examination, just making the announcement, I vote for the Green Party, mainly because I don't like Republicans and Democrats. I don't like the given choices. You know, so it's more of like thumbing my nose, if I'm honest. But your question would be, so what? So what if I claim that I like the Green Party or I'm a part of it? So what? Show me what you do on the ground. That's the question. How do you live? So Jesus is faced with a choice here contextually. And John the Baptist, you'd have to look into the texts um, in more detail. So read Daniel chapter 7, read Zechariah chapter 9, um, and see uh, how these are, are situated and what, what kind of imagery is used here, especially Zechariah, where they're, um, this is the, the passage where a kind of messianic figure rides in on a donkey and brings peace and things like that. And so, so John's saying, hey, if you're, the, if you're the one who's supposed to be bringing peace, why the hell am I in prison? And why is Rome uh, in power? And why are these Herods with all of their wickedness uh, the supposed kings of the Jewish people? And Jesus doesn't quote from Zechariah or Daniel back. He doesn't pick out um, maybe uh, potential passages of violence or the absence of violence or war or... Uh, those kinds of passages, which are all available, they're all messianic. Instead, he chooses from Isaiah. And he says, all right, go tell John what's happening. The blind see, the lame walk, those have leprosy, which is really means skin disease, not leprosy like you might imagine, are uh, cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And there are two classes in the ancient world the haves and the have-nots. There's everybody else, and there's the elite class. That's all. There's not the middle class, all right? 
Um, now, I suppose you could maybe add a third class, which is something like the, the destitute. Um, but in the most general sense, when he says good news are preached, is preached to the poor, he's talking basically to everybody except um, those who are in power. Those who work for Rome or are Rome or those who are part of the Jewish hierarchy um, connected to the temple. Um, so it doesn't mean Jesus, by the way, is, is like um, anti-rich people. He has some warnings for rich people, but he also dines with them, eats with them, and some of them are his own, his own disciples. So, um, but he's saying, by and large, if the Messiah has arrived, it's good news to everybody, including the poor. It's good news to the poor. The poor are lifted up. Which gives us a little window into how Jesus would like to describe the messianic movement that he's embodying. He's saying, you want proof that the kingdom is upon us? You want proof that the, that the coming one is finally here? I'll tell you, things are happening on the ground. And what kinds of things? Physical things. People are experiencing healing from all kinds of ailments. And, and um, in, in other words, the kingdom is a concrete reality to, to Jesus. I know oftentimes people talk about the kingdom of heaven and they think metaphorically. And I'm about to talk out of two sides of my mouth because I'm, I'm going to say it's a metaphor and it's also not a metaphor. But in the non-metaphoric sense, he's saying sick people are getting better. Brokenness is being healed. That's all the proof you need, John. So don't fall away on account of me. You might have had your own messianic expectations. So what am I saying here? I'm saying the context of what Jesus is saying um, is already beginning to point to the symbol that the kingdom of God, according to Jesus, is primarily a kingdom of healing, not primarily a kingdom of violent overthrow because that's a possible way of understanding the coming Messiah. He's saying, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. This is not going to be a violent overthrow of the establishment. That is not the movement I am leading. That is not the movement I am embodying. In fact, people are just getting better. People, common people, poor people, normal people, we could say, are experiencing healing. When, where they most need it. The very thing that is keeping them locked into a category of so-called unclean or impure or broken or wounded or unwell, that's where I am focusing my time. If people cannot see, I want them to see. If people cannot hear, I want them to hear. If people cannot walk, I want them to walk. If people's skin is messed up, I want their skin to get better. Um, even those who have died, I want to resurrect. This is good news to the poor. To all of us, in other words. That's Jesus' response. And then he says something. He says, um, you know, John's a great person. In fact, he's the prophet among prophets. But I tell you, <laughs> whoever is least in the kingdom. And here I think we have to begin to read Jesus on the archetypal and symbolic level. Whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than John. 
So the kind, and here is a fancy word, and I don't mean it to be so fancy, the kind of consciousness that Jesus is inviting people into, the kind of kingdom-oriented consciousness. John's great, but even those who experience the least level of the consciousness that Jesus is describing is greater than John. And yes, that is setting up a hierarchy. I know we live in a culture, especially postmodern culture, that is all things hierarchical are bad, as if hierarchy equals evil. Read some Ken Wilber if you want an alternative to that. He, he, calls, he, he calls, the, calls for the, uh, the necessity of what he calls a nested hierarchy, which is different than um, hierarchies of oppression, but a nested hierarchy. Yes, there is something better than another. There is a higher consciousness that is greater or deeper or richer or um, more integrated than a lower level of consciousness. And Jesus says it that directly. John is still stuck at a certain level of consciousness, which is violent. I'm, I'm interpreting a bit, but violent overthrow is the way of the kingdom. And and Jesus doesn't say he's wrong. He says he's a great prophet and he did great things, but he's going to die in prison. And anyone who is, is least in the kingdom of God and just begins to have their eyes opened, to use Jesus's allusion to the blind seeing, has achieved a greater level of consciousness and thus a greater level of healing. Another way of saying it, to use more Christian uh, theological language, is Jesus is describing, I guess what we would call, an incarnational expression of salvation and of healing and of wholeness. Incarnational, meaning it's enfleshed. It's not otherworldly. It's not we get sucked up to heaven and, and we escape. It's not a theology of escapism. It's where we most need integration, healing, and wholeness. That's where Jesus is. That's what I mean by incarnation, incarnational. If the good news isn't made concrete in the everyday existence of our own wounds, then it's not really the gospel. It's not the good news. It's not good news at all. Otherwise, it's simply a mental construct that I can choose to believe in. That's not what's being expressed here. It's saying it comes about in the enfleshment of the ordinary. That's all incarnational means, infleshment. In the infleshment of ordinary reality, that's what's dawning. And whatever we mean by salvation, enlightenment, um, kingdom orientation can be experienced by everybody, including the poor. And, it, and the reason why that was maybe a challenge in antiquity is that I think people believe, well, if you, if you live rightly in the world, um, good things will happen to you. You'll be blessed. And if, you're live, uh, and if your life is not so blessed, it must be evidence of your poor choices. Pretty easy conclusion to draw. And sometimes it's the case. Sometimes um, it's the case that our poor choices lead to lead to some devastating consequences. It's also true that sometimes it's no choice of our own and bad luck happens and systems tend to be unfair. And and actually, I got a podcast brewing about is life supposed to be fair? So look for that in the, in the coming month. Um, but it just happens to be the case that shit happens. And, and does that mean that we can't experiencing, experience healing and wholeness? No, Jesus says, I'm here to enter into that kind of complexity. 
where there's blindness and leprosy and deafness and so forth and so on. That's, that's the terrain I'd like to enter. So let me try to think in symbolic terms as it relates to one's spiritual life in the 21st century. I'd like to say that the kingdom that Jesus is reminding of us of and the kingdom that um, the Christian calendar is supposed to be reminding us of and the Advent season, the lighting of lights that, that uh, we're invited into during this, during this time of year, um, it's telling us that the kingdom is about healing. The kingdom is about healing, and we all need healing desperately. And I know the list here is very concrete, and, and I think it can be read in a concrete fashion, and it also can be read in a metaphoric fashion. I mean, would you not say that you and I are really blind at times to the truth? I know I am. Isn't it true that that we, you know, have our, our fingers in our ears and we can't hear what's really true about the world? Yes. Is it true that it feels like at times that we can't walk, that we're stuck, that we're paralyzed, that we cannot move? Yes. Is it true that, that, the, that the experience of our skin, the largest organ in our body, feels off? And the thing that most interacts with the world is feels sick in some way. Yeah, it feels that way. And doesn't it feel at times that we're dead in a tomb under the earth? Yeah, it feels that way. And the kingdom is about experiencing some healing, the dawning of some healing here or there. Where we're blind, uh, we begin to see. And... Um, and I want to add one other thing that I think is a, is a unique invitation. I think it's an amazing time to be alive. I really do. And um, I think although we, there is tremendous power at our fingertips for destruction, there's also tremendous power at our fingertips for, uh, for healing and for wholeness. We have everything from modern scientific technology to a discipline that's only 100 years old, which is the discipline of psychology. We have all kinds of healers in our culture, um, all kinds of institutions that are trying to heal, um, trying to, to bring healing to ordinary people on the level of their own psyche and on the systemic level. We have these capacities. And, um, and in that sense, the image that Jesus gives us of the Messianic age is holistic in terms of healing. It's not just one area of my life. The image for that is seeing and hearing and walking and the organ that is our skin and even what is dead inside. The whole person, the whole being is what's um, being imagined here as experiencing some healing from the dawning of the messianic age. Now, what a way to think about the Messiah. I know in modern times, I complain about this in my, in my book, Bitten by a Camel, but you know, we think that salvation is about going somewhere else. Just 
read the freaking Gospels. Leave that for, you know, uh, I don't know, dorm room debates. Is there an afterlife? That's not a concern of Jesus. It's about the everyday and the ordinary. And that's his answer to John. Just look around. So if you want to say, where is the kingdom of God now? Where is it right now? Look toward the healing. And you might have to open up your eyes and look beyond the Christian world or the so-called Christian world or Christian institutions. Just look for where the healing is happening. Look for ways that you can open up to the healing that is available in your own life. Look for ways in which you can be a healer or as Henry Nouwen likes to say, a wounded healer, which is an ancient archetype. You can't heal unless you recognize your own wounds. That's Henry Nouwen's great um, realization. So, Um, maybe I'm saying in short, today's Advent reading and what I'm hearing in it is that the path of healing and wholeness is calling to us once again from the pages of antiquity. May we not fall away on, on account of hearing these words, but fall into our own participation in the healing that's available to us in our life and to be healers where we can. After all, the idea of following Jesus sometimes is just that straightforward. Be a healer yourself. Peace. See you next week.